We looked last week at Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle. We looked at his Damascus Road encounter last week. We saw last week that Saul was in need of immediate ministry to cement his moment of conversion. And in the Syrian city of Damascus, I believe a name Ananias provided those things. We see a few key things that he prayed for him. He laid his hands on Saul. He extended ministry to Saul. That's a massive step for someone who believes this guy is out to kill him. This guy's shown up in a Damascus. Everyone believes that the high priests have got this authority, which was true. He had letters that said he could round up Jews who believed in Jesus so that they could be taken to Jerusalem and killed. He was doing that for two years. And now he, come, he comes in contact with a Christian because God says he has to. And he goes, you know what? Out of obedience, I'm going to lay my hands on you. I'm going to impart the gift of the Holy Spirit to you through the authority that I have through Jesus. I'm going to offer you all the things that I have in God, even though everything in my flesh says you don't deserve this. We see that on top of that, God accepts him. God sends Ananias. Then the next thing happens, Ananias baptizes him. He brings the guy not only close to God, but says, you know what? This guy, because Jesus says so, is family. He brings him into the life of the church. and goes, you know what? You are baptized. You're one of us now. And then he takes that one step further again. It says that he feeds him. He offers hospitality. The ancient way of hospitality was a breaking down of barriers like never before. So for him to go from one step, yep, God accepts you, that's fine. Then he goes, now, <laughs> as a community, we accept you. It's okay, strength in numbers. And then he goes, come into my home, Saul. I accept you. What a mega statement that is. Huge. Today, the passage we're about to read follows on from that. So if you, hopefully we've got our Bibles. I've just filled all that time in, so you've got your Bibles open. Some of us are still trying to find accidents. So I get that. So chapter 9, we all got it. Got it, got it, got it, got it. I got it in quadruplicate. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those that heard were astonished and said, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Story of his life, eh? When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Keep your thumb in there. I've got one more verse to cover in a sec. When we read Acts, this particular passage of Acts chapter 9, it is believed to not just be a straight down the line, this is how it happened in the space of a day or so. If we read this through, when we look at the history, this, car, this passage actually covers about 10 years. What we're reading just now covers a 10-year span. I've given a bit of a timeline on that sheet there. We know that Saul had taken time to grow in what he needed to know because he was well aware of his God-given calling and the gravity of the task ahead. According to Paul in Galatians 1, and that's on screen here, this started by withdrawing from Damascus and going to Arabia. That far north, that was a neighboring nation of Syria. Paul writes that he spent three years there. And then he returns to Damascus, this time with a solid grasp on his faith, and it's very clear that he has a Christ-centered message to share. After this, Luke picks up the story again at verse 20. We see that Saul's message was very, very compelling at this point. Luke tells us that his newfound knowledge is unshakable. And all his interactions with the large Jewish population of Damascus has left everyone baffled. They're amazed at this story. We even see in verse 25 that he has amassed followers himself as well. Sorry. But he's also become a threat to the faith that he once espoused, the, one, the faith that he once championed. It's not too long before there's a plot hatched to kill him there as well. That's the walls of Damascus there that he would have been lowered over. He's able to escape Damascus over the wall. And his next logical step is to return to the scene of his previous crimes against the Lord, Jerusalem. Now I'm covering that history because I'm going to take you into a bit of a challenge now. A new major challenge is facing the Jerusalem church right now. In fact, I will go as far as to say this is a challenge almost equal in magnitude to the others we've already covered. Think about that for a sec. Acts has gone through some challenges. The church in Jerusalem has been challenged. There was persecution from the Sanhedrin in chapter 4. That's a no-brainer. If they're not going to agree with you, then they're going to fight against it. Some of the guys have been beaten and whipped out of that. In chapter 5, there is deception threatening. You've got Ananias and Sapphira. Something seeking to destabilize the church from within with deception. People trying to uh, lie to the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And obviously the Spirit of God wasn't going to have that. Then in chapter 6, we have the risk of division. You've got the Hebraic Hellenistic divide. 
chapter 7 and 8, we've got martyrdom going on. Stephen getting killed. Saul breathing threats, trying to rip the church to bits. And now we've got this. Now that the church had gone through some maturing, it was time to see what it was made of. There was a big wide world to reach and the church was on the doorstep of Gentile mission. The very next passage we look at is going to explore that. But it needed to pass its biggest test to date. Could they embrace a person who had once been so hostile? Could they embrace that person? Could they see past their hurts and their misgivings and give a guy like this a chance to grow in Christ? Could they go as far as to go, you know what? Come and join us and grow and learn this faith that we have, no matter how hostile to us you've previously been. Go one step further. Could they believe for such a person to not only get into heaven, but even excel in their faith walk now too? Yeah, we'll let you in because we kind of, you know, we've got to populate the kingdom of God, I guess. But what, you got a destiny? Really? We've been fighting against you for ages and now you want to join us and actually do well in this? Could they take a violent and hostile man like Saul and see that God had a plan for his life? Wow. Saul arrives in Jerusalem and makes an effort to get connected with the local church, but his disciples are not buying it. Many of their number would have lost friends and family over the two years he was wreaking havoc there. We were seeing some full-on things happen. Two years of this man trying to destroy the church. Paul's own testimony was that he was trying to get people to the point of blaspheming. It's pretty nasty stuff. since leaving Jerusalem up to this point he'd simply disappeared for over three years nobody really knew the change of heart he'd had we could kind of forgive the church for not kind of wanting to go go with the flow on this we can understand the church's position about yeah we don't think we'll let you join us Saul we could forgive him for not believing the claims But there is this great believer in their midst named Barnabas. We've already read about that pure-hearted man of earlier. And we see here it is this man that picks up the ministry in Jerusalem where Ananias and Damascus left off. It was Barnabas who vouches for him to Peter and James. He vouches for Saul's testimony. He vouches for his acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. He acknowledges the fearless preaching of this man. And finally, after the encouraging work of Barnabas, the apostles are convinced and Saul is accepted and embraced as a Christian brother. There 
will always be the need need for Ananias's and Barnabas's in the church. We need them in droves. We need them in herds. We need them everywhere in the life of the church. Why? I can make for that. Simply this. There's always going to be souls. There's always going to be people formerly known as hostile coming into our midst. Why is that? Why? Because they're all going to be trying to murder Christians? No. Romans 8, 7 says that the hostile mind, that the carnal mind is hostile to God, right? Every time we are outside of Christ, we are hostile to God. We are in a position of hostility already. It's going to take some encouragement. It's going to take some Ananias. It's going to take some Barnabas to get people over the line. Hostile people, humbled by Christ, needing to be embraced by the church and released into their destiny in God. It's interesting to see the Barnabas in the Greek means son of encouragement. I don't know if Barnabas is his real name. I reckon that's the nickname they gave him. Some scholars suggest that. Ananias ironically means whom God has favoured or graciously given. That's the name of Ananias and Sapphira. He could have gone either way too. But we have this one in Damascus. Encouragement. Love, grace, and favor. That's what these two men of God gave, and Saul made it over the line. That's a great combination to receive the once hostile but now humbled person for Christ. Now, when they get past that, they've answered their call, they've embraced a hostile brother. All the challenges they face as the church has stood strong. Every deception, no, we're not having a bar of that. Every division, no, we're going to clarify, we're going to sort that out, we're going to reconcile that stuff. Every persecution, we're going to stand strong. Every hostile person in the wind, in the door, we're going to hear the spirit of God and go, even not just face value, but we're going to embrace people and believe that Jesus can change them. Once they get to that point, it's worth looking at Luke's last verse in chapter 9. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Throughout Luke's account, you'll find after every challenge, there is a short verse that kind of reads along these lines, and each one expands as you go along. These are called summary verses. These verses sum up the state of play in the life of the church right before we go from one theme to another. See them at the end of Acts 2 and all that sort of stuff. This is the climate, this is the culture of a church which is about to engage with its greatest mission endeavor to date. They were on the eve of world mission. The church is about to reach Gentiles in droves. 
they're on a major new thrust. All their theology, all their experience up to this point has prepared them for the next step. The ability to embrace a recognized former church foe provided a good test of character before they took this next natural step forward in their progress. And as we look at that summary verse, we can see a handful of key things which are firmly in place. Their culture is just right. First up, the church had peace. There would always be opposition to their message. Herod, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and even the Roman Empire down the track would not be on the same page as the church. But there was an undeniable peace around the church at that time. The immediate hostile threat to them had been tamed by the touch of Jesus. The immediate hostile threat had been tamed by the open and forgiveness and the embracing of the church. This, as well as answering every other challenge and coming out the other side in unity, brought them to a great place. It brought them to a season where there was an absence of turmoil. Both inside and out, there was quiet and calm. The church was in peace. Luke is writing of a God-placed peace here. Yes, there will be other things going on. There will be other peripheral things going on, but there was a peace about them. It's the one that Paul himself would write about in Philippians 4.7. The one that transcends understanding. The one that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's that sort of peace that has been spoken about here. The other cultural thing, the church had strength. It was getting stronger. The Greek word for strength there means well-built. In the context of this passage and others in the New Testament, this is all about the spiritual strength or the advancement in spiritual conditioning. The church in Israel. Now, I'm going to use that word Israel instead of Jerusalem now. Because that verse tells us that we are well beyond Jerusalem now. It says Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, all of Israel is now lumped together as one church. The church in Israel is strong in spirit and strong in character. In general, these people are just becoming strong and dependable Christians. Can I tell you something that makes me shudder a little bit? For those of you, you're looking at me, you're looking at my petite little frame here. For those on podcasts, I'm 6'1", and I'm 115 kilos. And um, people come to me and go, you look like a strong lad. And everything in me trembles. Why? Because that is usually a precursor to something else. You look like a strong lad. Can you do this for me? Can you lift this ridiculous thing that I can't lift? Can you push my valiant 2Ks to the service station? Can you... Can you do this arduous task because you look like a strong lad? 
part of it's a bit of an ego trip because, hey, yeah, I am a strong lad, you know. <laughs> but part of me is like, oh, man, work, really? There's one time where that backfired. My next door neighbor assumes, you look like a strong lad. Can you help me? I'm like, yeah, all right. She had managed to go, she'd managed to take a half full fish tank with fish in it to a pet store. She was on holidays and the pet store fish sat. She goes, can you carry my half full fish tank into the house for me from the car? I'm like, how did it get in there? Apparently there's a two person at the other end. Here's me, yeah. Oh. Thing weighs a ton. I'm carrying it proudly because I've got the muscles. I can do this. Get to the front door. She goes around the back to open the back door so she can open the front door. And that's when it went pear-shaped. You see, she opens the front door. And what we forgot about was Max. Max is an Irish wolfhound cross. Who loved me a little bit too much. <laughs> when you want to pat him, he's got a head, head the size of a horse. And he jumps up on your shoulders and goes, <laughs> you want to play or what? <laughs> and he did that while I was holding a fish tank. <laughs> it went in slow-mo. No. You know? <laughs> This thing runs up and just jumps and puts his head straight through the bottom of the fish tank. Water everywhere, fish flapping. <laughs> Lady panicking, looking for a bucket. I said, make sure you use cold water. I've, been, I've, been, I've known for that to go wrong too. The first century church had come to a place where the people were noticing its strength. And now, even in heaven, Jesus is beginning to say, you look like a strong church. You look like a strong bride. And it did have, a, it was a precursor. We got something else to lift together now. Are you ready to carry this? The challenge for any church is to keep getting stronger in their spirit. The world gets tougher. Faith will get tested regularly. It's in your individual interest and it is in our collective interest to continually to get stronger in what we believe, in our convictions, in our conduct, all that we are. Let's get continually get stronger in Christ. There will be a time when Jesus asks us to lift the next part of the load in this mission thing. And in case you haven't noticed, you get a sense the Lord is doing something at the moment, don't you? I can see that question about to be asked of us pretty soon. The church in the mount, I believe, is going to have that question asked of it. In light of the fact that we're in the last stage, time is of the essence. Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica this way. Encourage one another and build each other up. That same word is being used there for strength. 
just as in fact you are doing. We're to get built up. Become well-built Christians. Commit to becoming stronger in our faith. Commit as a body to strengthening each other. In a gym weights room, which I've kind of got that picture there, we call that spotting. Someone's lifting a weight. Someone else is present. They have a hand under the load in case you can't carry it. And together, everyone gets stronger for it. The welfare of each other is looked out that way. It's a safe environment for one person to lift and another person to make sure it gets done without anyone getting injured. We've got to spot each other. Look out for each other. Build each other up. The church had peace. It had strength. And the church was living in the fear of the Lord. The great theologian John Stott simply and rightly calls this godliness. And this church was committed to that. They'd chosen their path. Their compass was set. The GPS had locked in the destination and they were just following to the letter. Every every decision-making process was in the direction of God's leading and God's standard. Now this mattered because the world at large didn't have the moral compass of Judaism to follow. This mattered because the world outside their doors, the world outside Israel, didn't know what the God of Israel really stood. They weren't that acquainted with the Ten Commandments. They didn't know the Mosaic Law. They didn't know all those things. And Christians were going to go into highly pagan societies to places where they had altars to unknown gods to try to account for this guy down south. To an unknown God, these people were going to come and present that unknown God to their world around them. And the best way for them to do that was to display their godliness to a community that wasn't naturally going to go there. The world they were about to enter and evangelize was highly idolatrous, highly immoral. The message to the world would be an invitation to join them and be like them. If their God-likeness, their godliness was out of order, the world wouldn't have anything to reference their faith on. As representatives of God, they would be disrespected and disregarded if they couldn't display that they were different to the world around them. An ungodly church will draw people to themselves, not Jesus. An ungodly pastor will build crowds, but not disciples. And that can't last because as people... We can't meet that deep need that the world has. Only Jesus can. The church in Israel was ready for world mission because people would be able to clearly see God in them. In a few chapters, we'll see that play out really well. They had Holy Spirit encouragement. The Holy Spirit continues to take center stage in a church that's ready to reach its world. We're going to see next passage, next week, we're going to see just how deeply involved the Holy Spirit is going to get 
The Holy Spirit makes the Gentile church come alive. Even before Peter is ready to take that next step. The Holy Spirit is always front and center. We've got to continue to keep it that way. And finally, they had the capacity and they had the track record of growth. The Greek word used here refers to growth in multiplying rates. It's actually safe to say that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to grow healthier and bigger. It's described as a body multiple times. And healthy bodies grow. Something not growing when it should be is a sign that something is unhealthy in the system. I'm going to wind up about now. This passage signs off on one major theme of Acts and gets us ready for another. And I think the next theme is a pretty major theme, not just for that church, but I see parallels in our journey too. Let's take a moment to take stock of where we are at as a church, take a stock of where we're at as individuals, and take stock of what the future might look for us. Our next phase of church growth needs to be with people who have not been engaged in faith yet. It's great that believers move into town and want to join us. They love our DNA and want to be part of that. I love that side of things. I, you know, there's people that are disengaged with churches in the city and they're looking for home and I'm glad that they can find home here. I'm all for that. But outside of that, each congregation in this city should be growing from new believers. The Australian Baptist Church last year grew by 1,000 new believers. The entire Australian Baptist movement. 1,000 adults. It grew by 10 times that because of migrant transfer. That's two decisions per year per church. I believe the time is coming when we need to be on top of that a bit more. Not because we're flying the Baptist flag, but that's just a lot of churches represented that should be fruitful boughs for the kingdom. We have we have Gentile, unengaged with God, unfamiliar with God people to reach shortly. We're already starting to think of plans for twenty seventeen. We're beginning to look at incentives that will see more and more of those people engage with our church. I'm excited about what we can do to engage with our community even deeper. This year's not done yet. We've still got the show weekend coming. All right, we've got people there who are going to get caught up in all the rides and the show bags and the fun and all that sort of stuff and the livestock and all that. But hopefully we're doing this in faith that we're going to put the name Jesus across some people's path as well. I don't even know what you do with that yet, but I'm already excited. Before that takes place, are we ready? 
We need Ananiases. We need Barnabases. We need encouragers. We need extenders of favor and grace. We need people who are happy to extend that to people who are not one of us. And I believe the answer to this question is yes, but let me ask it anyway. Will those gracious encouragers be found at Mount Gambia Baptist Church? Second, our church culture needs to be right. It needs to continue to be peaceful. I'm using the word continue. This is not a correction sermon. This is a reminder sermon. It needs to continue to be peaceful. It needs to continue to be a place where the opposing forces of the outside world doesn't dim our resolve or peace in God. And a place where internally conflict continues to be resolved quickly and graciously. Where unity continues to abound, where it is preserved and God's blessing results resides as a result. On a unified people, God bestows his blessing forevermore, right? It needs to be strong. This is something I'm beginning to emphasize around the place. Our scriptural position, our personal convictions, these need to hold up against our own doubts and it needs to hold up to the world's scrutiny. No small feat at all, isn't it? That's not a small challenge. We're going to look in the mirror and see past our doubts and go, you know what, this thing is real. We need to look at the mirror of the world and go, when they start going, oh, do you really believe that? What do you really stand for? Let me show you what's real here. Spiritually, we need to be stronger than the pull of the world around us. We need to always be advancing in our spiritual development. This means getting stronger in the arena of prayer. It means getting deeper in our knowledge of God's word. And it means spotting each other as we all develop together. In the new year, we'll be aiming to prioritize discipleship and fellowship in our church because these things are vital to our strength training. What we're currently doing with our kids and kids' leaders in the area arena of worship is feeding into that emphasis as well. Isn't it great for our kids' workers to be able to worship the Lord with us, go fresh in God, and ministering to our kids, that's a great thing. I'm excited about that. I'm, I just enjoy. I just love seeing our our, our, our kids worshiping God. I'm, I'm loving our parents worshiping with them. I'm loving our kids leaders being able to do that, worshiping together, and then going out in the power of God together, just with that edge. It needs to be godly. Our path needs to be clearly defined and it needs to lead to Jesus and his will. The world needs to know what Jesus is like and Jesus ordains us to display his character. That's a big responsible, but godliness will get us over the line. It needs to be open to the Holy Spirit's leading. A life without a spirit is a dead one, right? A church without the Holy Spirit spiritually flatlines he's still living and active in the church today and needs to be open to growth 
And I don't believe it's sinful to speak of this as a possibility. I refuse to read those books that say, double your church in a year. Or talk about church growth principles or all these other different things. I refuse to read those books. Why? Because this is a living, breathing entity. Not a heartless, soulless business plan. But it's precisely because it's a living entity that I believe growth happens. Especially so when it's healthy. In that setting, we're not so much deliberate about growth as we are about health. If we continue to get healthy, we will naturally grow. But that means a bit of physical expansion. More people actually in the building. More people taking our biscuits. More people taking our favorite seat. More people stealing our car park. More people making it a little bit more uncomfortable for us. More people not knowing our songs and we're going to have to help them go, here's a screen, can we help you? More people not knowing our culture, not knowing our language, not knowing our way. But when that happens, are we ready for that? Let me leave those challenges your way. I'm inviting the worship band to come up now. We're going to finish on a song or two. But let me, let me pray for us as a congregation. And let's worship the Lord as we do that. So let's bow our head in prayer.